Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Once upon a time, there was no such thing as Democrats and Republicans. There was no such thing as a Bill of Rights or a Constitution. They didn't have a conversation around this this concept of religious liberty. There was no really thought like that. Once upon a time, there was just Rome. And Rome transitioned from a republic into an empire under the leadership of a, a very influential first emperor named Caesar Augustus. And he ruled. And there was a baby born during that time, a nondescript little Jewish boy that was born, we're told, in a manger who would eventually eclipse the popularity of Caesar Augustus. And not only would this little baby eclipse, the, would his fame eclipse the fame and popularity of that Roman emperor, but he would eclipse the fame and popularity of every Roman emperor that would follow. He would stand up against the injustice of the Roman Empire. He would stand up against the hypocrisy and the duplicity of the temple. He would teach us that we are to love our neighbor, we are to love our enemy, we are to forgive one another, we are to turn the other cheek. He would teach us at every turn to live differently than the way everybody else around us lives. And eventually he was betrayed by a friend, condemned by the temple, crucified by the empire, and today he is worshipped throughout the world. And once upon a time, not too long after that, Christians would gather, and they would gather early in the morning on the first day of the week, and they would sing songs to, to God, and they would talk about, encourage one another from little fragments of letters that they got from maybe someone who was a pastor or if they were lucky enough to have a part of a letter from someone like Paul or from Peter and they would gather and they would make vows to one another of chastity and fidelity and they would promise to be men and women above reproach and they would promise to work hard at their jobs and they would promise to be honest and they would gather together in these little gatherings in homes or under a tree or in a courtyard somewhere And you would find both masters and slaves, you would find men and women, you would find children and soldiers and merchants, and you would find Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and Romans. And these little pockets of people would gather and they believed the most unbelievable thing. They believed that God was spirit and not stone. They believed that Every single person had intrinsic value, not some value that had been assigned to you by a society or by a culture and how many likes you got or how many retweets you got. And they believed that in something that put them at odds with everybody else. They believed that the time for animal sacrifice had passed. Those days were over. And they also were betrayed by friends. They were condemned by the temple. They were persecuted by the empire, and their influence spread like an airborne disease. We know a little something about that, don't we? And now it's our turn. Now it's our turn. And one of these days, our generation of Christianity will be a a once-upon-a-time story that somebody is going to tell, and you just wonder, what will that story sound like? What story will they tell about the American Christian in the year 2020. Because here's the thing, we do not go to church, we are the church, and we are the stewards of faith for our generation. 
And when they tell the story about this generation and American Christians, I just wonder what kind of story they're going to tell. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to look at a passage today that reminds us that there once upon a time was a version of Christianity that inspired awe in the people who looked at it. It made people stand back and say things like, what is up with those people? What makes them so different? There was a version of Christianity at one time that was so intriguing that even though people thought that the customs were a little strange and at times were even offensive, people leaned in instead of leaning out. There was once a version of Christianity that caused people to pay attention. Our story today happens about two months after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Not two years, not 20 years, not 120 years. Two months after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, what happens in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 4 that we're going to look at, happens. And Acts is really, let me just explain the book of Acts to you. Acts is really just a, a, a history of the early church and how it set itself up. I mean, it's really fascinating to read it. You see some of the meetings that happened, and you see some of the miraculous things that took place. You see some of the problems that they had to overcome. They were trying to figure out this new faith and how it was going to work, and how are we going to, you know, they're blending all these different types of people together, sometimes with vastly different backgrounds, and they came at faith, and they came at God from different places with different ideas, and they're trying to figure out how to navigate all of that it's it's really quite fascinating to read and luke wrote the book of acts and luke thoroughly investigated the life of jesus he interviewed everybody he could get his hands on and uh, he would eventually travel around the mediterranean rim with the apostle paul who planted some of the very first churches in greek and roman cities and paul penetrated the, those cities with the gospel of christ was very very successful and the person who wrote what we're going to look at today, Luke, was an eyewitness to these things. And he tells us that immediately following the resurrection, when Christianity began to spread in the city of Jerusalem and really throughout that entire region, there were a lot of questions. There were, you know, some people were claiming to have seen Jesus. Uh, groups of people were claiming to have seen Jesus after the resurrection. There were two men they were on their way to Emmaus that claimed to have had a conversation with Jesus. There was a, you know, the disciples said he appeared to us. There was a large group of people that said Jesus was in our midst and different ones that had encountered him along the way. And eventually what would happen is that the apostles will become the centerpiece of this movement and they will be the spokesman for this movement called the way. It would not be known as Christianity for some time after that. And so here's the setup today from Act, for Acts chapter 4 for our time together. Peter and John, two of the disciples, have decided to go to the temple, and they're going there to go there to pray. And the temple is located on about 34 acres. There's, you know, two or three or four buildings on this acreage, and there's a big wall around it, and then there's some steps that lead up to it. Well, as they go upstairs to go into the temple and they're on their way into the temple, they encounter this lame man who has been this way from birth. And he's over 40 years old, which means that everybody probably knew this guy. They were probably all familiar with this lame person who laid by the gate, and the only thing he could do to survive was to ask people to give him help through, through gifts that he would receive. And so that's what he did all day. He laid there, and he stuck out his hand, and he asked people 
for money. And they're going into the temple, Peter and John, and he's begging and he's asking for a donation. And they say, basically, we don't have any money, um, so instead they heal this guy. Now, every time I tell you this story, I, I sing you a song that I learned in camp. And I was all prepared to do that today. And Dee Dee said, Brett, you've sung that song enough. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to sing the song. But there's a great song that I learned at camp that talks about how Peter and John meet this guy and they don't have any money. And he asks them for money. And they say, look, we don't have any money, but we can heal you. And so they heal him. And so this guy stands up. What do you do if you've been lame for 40 years? And these two guys walk along, and you've asked them for money. They don't, have, you don't have any, they don't have any money, but they say, look, we'll heal you. And they heal you, and you get up. What do you do next? I don't know about you, but if I'm, the, if I'm him, I'm following these two guys, right? Something's going on with them, and I want to know more about them. So he follows them into the Temple Mount, and as everybody is seeing this guy, they're thinking, they're all thinking the same thing. Isn't that the, that looks like the guy that's been laying by the gate all these years asking us for money and and um, i mean isn't that the guy begging at the temple gate isn't that him and it is and now there's a commotion in the temple area and people are starting to gather around and peter not one to miss an opportunity to preach begins to take advantage of this group of people and he starts talking about jesus and the more he talks about jesus the more people show up and the more people show up the louder he gets and the next thing you know the, the temple guards and the, and the people, the, the authorities start to show up and, and say, you know, like, what's going on? This is not usual. And they realize now that they've got a problem because here are these two guys that are talking about Jesus. And I thought we'd crucified Jesus and I thought we'd done, been done with all that. And here we are again, right back where we started with these people talking about Jesus. What is with these people? And they realize they have a couple of followers of Jesus and this name is cropped up again. And there have been sightings all over the area. And now here are these two guys, charter members of the Jesus movement, and they're back. And they're not just back. They're in the temple. They're drawing a crowd. They're causing a disturbance. Well, they arrest Peter and John. This is late afternoon. And they take them off to jail. Now keep this in mind. These are the very people who very likely had arrested Jesus. These are very likely the people that had mistreated Jesus. And they take Peter and John off and they put them in jail. Very likely the same jail that they put Jesus in. And again, this is just two months after the resurrection. Two months ago, Peter and John have seen Jesus arrested. They've seen him tried and crucified. And they're likely in the same place with the same people facing a very similar fate that Jesus had faced. As far as they know, they will not see the light of day. They do see the light of day. They wake up the next morning and they bring them into the Jewish council and they brought the big guns in. There was a guy there named Annas who had at one time been the high priest. Annas had a, a son-in-law. Son-in-law's name was Caiaphas who was the acting high priest. There were about 15 or 20 other guys in the room who had more than likely been in the room when they had Jesus in there. And they're, they're thinking to themselves, here we go again with this Jesus talk and this Jesus guy, and we thought we dealt with all this already. And Peter and John, uh, they look at him and they say, look, what's going on? I mean, can't you just leave this alone? Can't you just shut up and not talk about this? Why can't you just move on? And right there in front of the very people who crucified Jesus, Peter begins to preach again. And he's face to face with these men. And this is Peter. This is the guy 
who was in the courtyard after they arrested Jesus, and this girl said, hey, I think you're one of the disciples. And Peter said, no, I'm not. And three different times, Peter denied Christ. And so now he's confronted by the very same people who had arrested Jesus, <clears throat> and he's going to be bold. And he's going to preach at them. And basically what he says is, you crucified him and God raised him from the dead. And at the very end of his message that he delivers to this ruling council, this, these are the people who have the power to decide whether he lives or dies. He makes this extremely offensive statement. Here's what he says. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. And he's in a room with the 20 people that have the power to just really decide his fate. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. To which someone might reply, well, how narrow. I mean, how unfair is that? I can just tell you from experiences I've had talking to certain people, that's one of the reasons that they don't want to be a Christian. You know, I've been talking to certain ones, and I'll say, you know, what, what's your resistance to faith? Like, what's the, what are the problems for you? And from time to time, somebody will say, well, one of the things I don't like is that he, Jesus says he's the only way to God. What about all these other faiths? What about all these other religions? I mean, it just seems so narrow to me that, that Jesus thinks he's the only way. And I get that. I, I understand how that sounds narrow, and it sounds unfair and how can it be so narrow and how can there only be one way and why does why does jesus say that and that's the thing i would point out to him is look i didn't make that up the disciples didn't make that up jesus was the one who said i am the way the truth and the life but you know what jesus is the only one who was ever crucified and then raised from the dead so he's earned the right to be able to say that but it's a problem for people Peter's here in the room with this group of people who are going to decide whether or not he lives or dies, and he says, look, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead, and there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so you got to, you know, you got to hold on a minute, you got to think about, you got to cut Peter and John a little bit of slack, because here's what we know about Peter and John. Just two months earlier, they have seen this man crucified, and then days after that, had breakfast with him on the beach. Okay, they've seen him beaten, flogged, blood everywhere. I mean, just this horrible scene. He dies, he's buried, and a few days later, they are having breakfast with this same man on the beach. So they're a little bit excited. You can understand that. When one day you see a man hanging on a cross, and then the next day you're having breakfast with him on the beach, you say things like, John, like Peter is saying. When you've had breakfast with a man who was dead and risen from the dead, if he says something, you just believe him. When a person comes back from the dead, you pretty much believe anything they say and you want to hang out with them. Yes, it's offensive. Yes, it's narrow. But that's what they said because that's what they believed. And suddenly these two men who ran for cover the night Jesus was arrested, Peter, a man who denied even knowing Jesus, is gathered with the very same people who killed Jesus, and he looks these men in the eye, and he says, you are guilty of murdering and crucifying the Son of God. But have no fear, God raised him from the dead, and it doesn't matter what you say, and guys, it really doesn't matter what you do to me or what you do to John here. Caiaphas, Annas, you need to know there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Luke keeps going, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John 
And here's what they're thinking. You two, do you not understand that we have the power to see whether or not you live or die? Do you not understand that we could take you into Pilate right now and say, listen, Pilate, we think, we thought we had this under control, but these two yahoos have come in here and they're talking about Jesus. We think we need about two more crucifixions. If we just had two more crucifixions, we think we can put this Jesus thing down forever. I mean, they're looking at these two and they cannot believe the courage that is being displayed to them because they're the ones who have the fate of these two men in their hands. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There was something special about them. But since they could see, that the, they, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, see, it's kind of tough to deny the miracle when the miracle is standing right next to the two guys. Right? Like, what do you say to that? How do you discipline these two guys when... Everybody knows this dude that's standing up now for 40 years has laid by the temple gate trying to get somebody to help him. Yep, that's the guy. Everybody's looking at him going, isn't that the guy? Yep, that's the guy. My parents gave money to this guy when I was a little kid. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they send Peter and John and this guy out of the room. And they, they get together for this little powwow and and, you know, they say, you know, what are we going to do? I mean, everybody's going to think that this guy got healed because these two guys, you know, said something or did something. And, you know, what are we going to do? And they bring them back in, and there's a little bit of pressure on these guys to release these two. And so they, they, they are going to release them, but before they release them, they're going to threaten them. And they say, basically, keep this message of Jesus to yourself. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus. We don't want to hear that name anymore. Um, and then they let them go. And what do you think they did next? <laughs> let me a- ask you what you would have done next. If it's me, I rent a donkey. I take everything I own. I stuff it into a sack. I throw it over the back of the donkey. I get on the donkey. I leave Jerusalem. I never look back. <laughs> Whew, we were lucky. Whew, we were praying. Those guys got us, the same guys that got Jesus. They could have killed us at any minute. We could have ended up on a cross. Don't ever want to go through that again. And they got out of there. Man, they almost killed us. Is that what these two did? No. It's not what they did. Because when you have had breakfast with Jesus on the beach, after you have seen him dead on a cross, you lose all your fear and all of your concern about this life. And everything changes for you at that point. They went back to the Christians who were waiting and wondering back, you know, headquarters, wherever headquarters was. And the people that are waiting on Peter and and John to see if they're even going to get out of jail alive, they're thinking to themselves, are we going to have two more crucifixions to go to? Are we going to have two more people to take off of crosses and carry them and put them in tombs like we did with Jesus? I mean, are we going to go through this whole thing again? And so Peter and John get back to this group and they tell them, what happened, and when they tell them what happened, we have in Acts chapter 4 the first prayer meeting that ever took place. We're pretty sure that, that this is the first time Christians ever got together and prayed. Now, before we look at this prayer, I want you to ask yourself a question. If you were them and you knew what had just happened with Peter and John and you knew how close that call was and you knew that they could have very easily ended up on a cross, let me just ask you, If you were going to pray in this prayer meeting, 
what would you pray? Fresh out of jail, you know that these are the exact men who killed Jesus. You're in the city where the, the, these events happened. You barely got out alive. And now you're together with a bunch of other Christians and, and you know you're being followed. You know you're being watched. You know that every move you make is basically being tracked by somebody. How would you pray? How would Christian Americans, I guess I should say American Christians in the, in the 21st century, how would we pray? This is what we find out in Acts chapter 4. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, that's how our prayers begin, right? Isn't that how you start your prayers? Sovereign Lord, right? No, that's not how our prayers generally start. Our prayers generally start, dear Heavenly Father, what's the next line? Thank you for this day. That's how we start our prayers, almost every time. Now, I've taken quite a few shots at you through this series for praying that way, for opening your prayers the same way. I'm not telling you that you can't thank God for the day. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to wake you up to the idea that often when we bow our heads to pray, we're saying the same things all the time. That our prayers have become lifeless and we've gotten into this habit of just repeating ourselves over and over and we're praying for the same things. If you want to genuinely thank God for the day, then do that. But that's not how they started their prayer. Sovereign Lord. What does it mean? Lord, you are in charge. You are large and in charge. You, you know everything that's going on with us. You know everything we need. We completely trust you. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You are sovereign God. They're recognizing who they're talking to. And they're quoting the Psalms. And even though it looked like God wasn't in control, they knew that God was in control. Let me just ask you a question. Has 2020 felt like you, to you at times like God was, was not in control? Have you ever kind of thought to yourself, man, God, I mean, what's up here? Because I want to believe in you and I want to believe that you've got all this, but man, this, this year has gone off the rails. And if it wasn't bad enough, Sean Connery died, daggone it. I mean, when 007 dies, you got problems, right? The world's got problems. God, it just feels like everything's out of control. Where are you? They easily could have felt that way. They easily could have felt like, God, you know, God, where are you? Everything just seems like it's gone completely out of control. But that's not how they prayed. No, it, it looks like things are out of control. God, it looks like Emperor Tiberius has everything in his hands. But God, you are in charge. Verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quote what David said. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And they're quoting from what they believe is a messianic psalm from David. Now David wasn't simply talking about things that were going on in his day. David is projecting a thousand years in advance and he's talking about when Jesus is going to show up. David was looking forward to a day when the anointed one, when the Messiah would show up. And these Christians quote this psalm because they realize that the person that David spoke about was the very person that they've been following and they've been hanging out with and it's starting to dawn on them, 
oh my goodness, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one David's been talking about. God had fulfilled his promise and had sent the anointed one, and that anointed one was Jesus. Verse 26, the kings of the earth rise up. This prayer goes on. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. God, we recognize that the one that David talked about, the prophet Isaiah pointed to, and the prophets pointed to, that's our master. Verse 28, they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. God, we realize none of this is a surprise to you. You are not shocked by what's going on. This has not caught you asleep. You have not been caught off guard. And because you were not surprised by all of this, what they're basically saying to God is, because you weren't caught off guard by all this, we're not going to be worried. And we're not going to be scared. But we do have a request, and here it is. Now protect us, watch over us and keep us, cause our portfolios to grow, our waistlines to shrink, and our kids to get scholarships. I'm going to lump my in, my, myself into this next sentence, okay? So I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching at me every bit as much as I'm preaching at you. We pray little prayers. And maybe that's why so little happens. We pray little prayers. You know that's not what they prayed, right? You know that's not what they prayed. That's what our prayers sound like. Here's what they prayed. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. <laughs> it would be really easy for us to say, it's that kind of boldness that got you guys in trouble. It's that kind of boldness that gets you brought in before the likes of Annas and Caiaphas. And what you probably ought to do is dial it down and maybe not talk so much about Jesus and not be so bold and just try to get up underneath the radar. But there once was a version of Christianity that inspired heroic prayers. And there once was a version of Christianity that inspired people to pray outside the boundaries of their little world and their family and their friends. There once was a version of Christianity where the Christians understood that something was going on in the world and their prayers were aimed at that. Here's what they prayed. Stretch out your hand. Not for us. Not for our benefit. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, so the whole world will know who you are, God, that, you are his, that, that he is your one and only son. And then Luke says, after they prayed, they, the place where they were, were meeting was shaken. I don't know what that means, but that doesn't sound good to me. That sounds scary to me. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, with confidence, fearlessly, in spite of persecution, in spite of threats. In other words, we don't care what you say to us. We don't care what you threaten us with. 
Now, right here, I need to make a really important point. When the scripture tells us that the first century Christians spoke about Jesus boldly, it didn't look anything like this. Okay, that is not bold. That is stupid. Right? That's what that is. That's stupid. That's some people who think they understand the Bible, have taken some verses, probably lifted them out of context, and, and they've gone and made their signs, and they show up all over the place, and they show these. I've been told they show up at veterans' funerals. They show up at rallies. They show up at gay pride things. They, they show up all over the place, and they show their signs like this. This is not helpful. This is not representative of Christianity, and this is not representative of what Jesus called us to be and what Jesus called us to do. When the first century Christians went out and spoke the word of God boldly, they did so in such a way that it drew people to Jesus. They increased by the hundreds. They grew by the thousands. And don't miss this. Their boldness was not because of some doctrine. Their boldness was not because of theology. It wasn't because of heaven or hell. It, wasn't, it didn't even involve sin. Their boldness was about an event that is at the epicenter of everything that we believe as Christians. Luke says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to what? The, the parables of, the, of Jesus? The sayings? Of Jesus the teachings of Jesus no to the resurrection of Jesus the Lord their confidence was 100% rooted and founded in the resurrection of Jesus and because they believed Jesus rose from the dead they were fearless and because they were fearless it led to selflessness it led to things like being selfless and being generous and being compassionate and it was the generosity and the compassion and the selflessness of the early Christians in the first century that caused pagan people in that culture to look on and say, oh my goodness, I want to be a part of that. Look at them. They're fearless. Look how bold they are. Look, look how nothing scares them. Nothing seems to rattle them. Oh my goodness. And do you know why we can fear not, why we can live with boldness as Christians? It's not because our candidate gets elected, if they ever figure that out. It's not because they come up with a vaccine for COVID. It's not any of that. The bedrock of the confidence of our faith, the reason we can live without fear, in spite of what goes on around us, is because God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you're new to Cross Lane or to our church or you're not a Christian and you're trying to figure it out or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you just need to hear this. Christians do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so. Now I've got your attention, don't I? What did he just say? We do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so. Don't, don't use that expression. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because Matthew who was an eyewitness and a disciple of Jesus and followed Jesus around and saw what happened, says so, believes it, and wrote about it. 
We believe it because Mark, who was an eyewitness, wrote about it and believed it. We believe it because Luke thoroughly investigated everybody he could get to, said, tell me what you know about Jesus. And he wrote it all down, and he believed it, and he wrote about it, and he said so. Peter, who was an eyewitness, wrote about it and said so. John, who was an eyewitness, disciple of Jesus, wrote about it and believed it. And then there's James, the brother of Jesus. Now let me just, show of hands, how many of you have a brother? Let me see, how many of you have a brother? Let me just ask you one question. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the son of God? Huh? I've got a little brother. There is nothing my little brother could do to convince me that he was the son of God. Here's what we know about James. As far as we know, James did not believe in Jesus, did not follow Jesus, was not a disciple of Jesus when Jesus was on the earth in his earthly ministry. But sometime after the resurrection, James becomes convinced that Jesus, his own brother, rose from the dead and eventually comes to a place where he refers to his brother as his Lord. What would your brother have to do to convince you of that? If you don't believe in Jesus for any other reason, take James's word for it. That's why we believe Jesus rose from the dead, because, not because the Bible says so, but because these men who were there and they saw it, and they got threatened with their own life, and most of these guys ended up getting killed for their faith in ways we don't even want to imagine. Jesus lives, and because he does, We can be bold, we can be compassionate, we can be selfless, we can be generous, and we can live lives that will cause the people around us to lean in, not lean out. And now we come back to the original question. What will our once upon a time story be? Someday when somebody somewhere writes the narrative about the 21st century American Christian What will that story sound like? As things got uncertain with our election, as things got uncertain with this strange disease called COVID, as nations struggled to get along, as people trembled in fear and looked to the government to save them, as the the rhetoric got escalated and people started yelling at one another and there were riots and they started to mistreat each other and the language got more and more dangerous and as they tried to figure out how to shrink the chasm of racism, not expand the chasm of racism, there were those among us who seemingly had no fear. They were informed, but they weren't worried. They were compassionate. They were engaged and involved, but they were not divisive. They were men and women of principle, but they were not judgmental. They were Christians. And the worse things got, the better they got. And some of them were Democrats, and some of them were Republicans, and some of them we don't even really know what they were because it didn't really seem to be that important. They were so worried about the cause of Christ that they didn't even mess with all that other stuff. Because beyond all of that, they were Christians, and we were better because they were among us. What will our once upon a time story be? We do not go to church We are the church, and we are the stewards of faith for our generation, and we set the tone, and we set the pace for the generation behind us. What will our once upon a time story be? I want to end the series 
with a passage of scripture that I read last week. We spent a lot of time here last week, and I just want to just hammer this home, and then we're done. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Let's start at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people who came before us, who were faithful, who taught us how to do it, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. In other words, anything that keeps us from being generous, anything that keeps us from being compassionate, anything that keeps us from being the warriors for Christ who are not afraid and are not worried and who just press into every day, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? Anything that keeps us away from that, let us throw that off and let us run with perseverance, not backing down. I will not relent in my faith. I will not turn away. I will be faithful. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, not on a politician, not on who's president, not on who's telling us about COVID, not on a senator, not on a mayor, not on any of that. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. That means he started it and he ended it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame. What does that mean? It means he marched right into Jerusalem in that final week, knowing that at the end of the week, he was going to end up on a cross, and he did it anyway for you and me. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that, here's the reason, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It is worth it, and it is working. Our Savior, who was tough as nails, looked at us and said, follow me because I have come to be the Savior of the whole world. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Listen. I don't know what the days ahead look like. I can tell you this. Christians are going to become less popular, not more popular. People of faith are going to be scorned and laughed at in the days to come, not embraced and loved. It's going to get harder. It's not going to get easier. Somebody has to love you enough to look you in the eye and tell you that. It's going to get harder for us. It's not going to get easier. And we better wake up and we better get ready and we start, better start praying some pretty bold prayers and we better start pressing into our faith and realizing that the whole bedrock of the whole thing is that Jesus really did raise from the dead. And if that's true, we have nothing to be afraid of. And we need to be the people of faith who model for everybody else what fearlessness and boldness look like. Pray bold prayers. Live a bold life for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning and we confess our weakness and we confess our sin and we confess that, Father, there is an awful lot going on with us that we just have got to overcome. Lord, it's really easy to live in this time and to, to somehow get scared and somehow shrink back and be afraid. Lord, don't let us be like that. Help us to be the people of faith that you call us to be. Help us to be compassionate, gentle, generous, forgiving. Help us to set the pace and model the way for everybody else. Help
Help us to pray bold prayers. Help us to not fix our eyes on some politician or some doctor. Father, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. It is there and only there will we have the confidence and the courage to make every day a day well lived for you. I pray, Father, in the precious name.